Hi, this is Steve with Thresher Media Group. Welcome to When You're Ready to Listen. This podcast is dedicated to exploring the truth about God, things you may not have understood, may not have been taught, or quite frankly, had a very hard time believing. And since our entire relationship with God rests on believing, it is important we learn how to separate the truth from the many lies and fictions that abound within the religion of Christianity. So when you're ready to listen, tune in and discover a pathway to freedom, encouragement, life, and hope. Episode 25, Revelation chapter 1, verses 8 through 16. The Alpha and Omega. Revelation 1, 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who now chooses to be coming the Almighty. Suddenly, Jesus begins to speak. We know that this is him because he uses the same title, Alpha and Omega, in chapter 22, verse 12. And in chapter 22, verse 16, he specifically states that he, Jesus, is the one speaking. This is one of the places where the titles of God are used interchangeably between the Father and the Son. Though utilizing the Greek alphabet, this phrase, the Alpha and Omega, is lifted from a Jewish practice of using the beginning and the end of the Hebrew alphabet to declare the totality of any event. For example, it is said that Adam transgressed the whole law from Aleph to Ta, whereas Abraham kept the whole law from Aleph to Ta. In effect, it's another way of Jesus declaring that as Yahweh Adonai, he is the sum totality of all things. For from him, by him, or through him, and to him are all things, without exception. Likewise, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Accordingly, all things not just begin with him, but they end with him, as all things are to him. He is the completion and fulfillment of his creation. Truly, he is the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Jesus, being the Alpha and Omega, communicates that he is eternal outside of time, and all of time is held in his sovereign hands. As David said, and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. It is all in his book, every little detail. What about choice? Practically, the issue of choice, my choice, your choice, the choice of others, is extremely hard to get our minds around, especially given all the trauma, terror, and sheer destruction that we have experienced. Truth be told, even our choices have been part of his beautiful purpose for our lives and his plan to circumcise us from this world. It has all been purposed such that we might learn to be willing to be identified as those who now and continually make their abode with him and not as those who now and continually make their abode in the world. Being outside of time, And knowing us intimately, he knows each and every choice we will make given a specific set of defined circumstances that he, Yahweh Ra, brings about and which Yahweh Adonai has predestined. Thus, he is able to use our choice and those circumstances to set the path for our lives. But the reality is that those are still our choices to which we are accountable. He never violates our personal sovereignty. Our choices are our choices, always have been and always will be. With that said, given all that happens in the end times, if you choose to be willing to dig down deep in your soul and endure in faith or to now be believing, 
you will one day praise Jesus for the path you have walked and all the choices you have made. In fact, in that day, true believers will be convinced that every step they took was not only necessary, but each step was also good, pleasing, and perfect, meaning that there could have been no other way. Hence, they will sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. His righteous acts will be revealed, and we will be convinced with our heart, mind, soul, and strength that they were all great and marvelous. Who is, who was, and who is to come. Next, we get another descriptor of the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Lord God, who is and who was, and who chooses to be coming, the Almighty. Who is speaks of Jesus being the Haya, for he is the I Am. Being rendered in the present active participle, it speaks of his eternal self-existent nature. Who was speaks of his incarnation, or his life on earth as a man, including his death and resurrection in bodily form. At one time, we beheld him. And he departed from us, but he ascended with a promise. Acts chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Who now chooses to be coming repeats the point that he already made, that he is the I am. But following who was, it points to the fact that in his resurrected body, he now is coming. Thus, when he comes to the earth, he will not be in spirit. He will not be an apparition. He will come in a physical but supernatural body just as when he ascended to heaven after the resurrection. Everyone will see him, scars and all, and there will be no mistaking the identity of the one who now chooses to be coming. The Almighty. Finally, Jesus also used another title which is given to God in the Old Testament, and that is the El Shaddai, Almighty. In embracing this title, Jesus declares himself to be all-powerful, and therefore fully able to accomplish all that he has promised and revealed. The Almighty is put out there like a seal of testimony. It's another way of saying, Amen, so be it. It will all be done just as he has said, for who can thwart his purpose? Who can sway his hand? Revelation chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. I, John, your brother, and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Now, you might agree with me that it's a bit disheartening that John did not start by saying, I, John, your brother and partner in the blessing and wealth and prosperity that are in Jesus. He does not even hint at it. Rather, he is our brother and partner in the tribulation. 
the kingdom or royal power, and patience in Jesus, all of which are rendered as nouns, as fixed aspects of our life. Being a brother, we are intimately connected in our spirits, and being partners, we get to share in the same tribulation, kingdom, and patience. Tribulation. Tribulation is a given for true believers because they belong to a kingdom that is not only in opposition, but is downright hostile to the one who now rules this world. Hence, all who wish to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We are in partnership with one another in this regard. There's no escaping it. We might as well embrace it and support one another through every dark and painful step. Jesus said, in the world, you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. And if he has overcome the world, so can we if we let him overcome in and through our lives. That's the glory of the design point. But our victory will be found down the pathway of tribulation and endurance. In fact, when Jesus says that the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it, the verb translated as narrow is the root word for tribulation. It is down this path of tribulation, trouble, or literally pressure that we learn to live as royalty. It's how we come to partake of his divine nature. Kingdom or royalty. Our brotherhood, our unity is to be found in our identity of royalty, being part of a holy nation, a chosen people set apart for God our Father. This is a privilege beyond description, and it is to bind us to one another in unity as brothers. Patient endurance. Through the depths of suffering, which comes from our willingness to let Yahweh go to war against and to put down our old sinful nature, the flesh, we can get tired, disheartened, beat down, and even hopeless. As a result, there are many who just stop the journey and decide that it's best to get what they can out of this world while they have the chance. And with the sad reality of the great apostasy, we know we will soon be seeing this in greater numbers than we could ever imagine. Simply said, people want God to be their genie in a bottle, so to speak, granting them the best out of this life. They forget or have never understood that he is the best and what he promises is more of him if we let him put our flesh to death. Thus, true believers dig down deep in their soul and choose to now be believing that Jesus is the best and that more of him is what they need. But it is hard. Therefore, endurance and patience are required no matter how long the journey. In fact, Jesus commends us to choose to possess our souls in endurance. Therefore, endurance is an aspect of our living by faith and preserving our soul, guaranteeing that we do not shrink back to destruction because we can no longer stand the pain. And that is why the Spirit commands us to run the race that is set before us with endurance, confident that the testing of our faith produces endurance, and endurance will have its perfect result so that we may be perfect complete, and lacking in nothing. Patient endurance is a defining aspect of our lives, of our partnership and brotherhood. I was on the island of Patmos. John equates his suffering to the fact that he stood for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was not in trouble because he was a troublemaker. Rather, he was exactly where God wanted him to be because he was living for Jesus and he was exactly where he chose to be. John makes it clear that he was not a victim to Rome. Rather, he is the one who chooses to be on this island, 
even though it was Caesar who banished John to the island. When John said that he was on the island of Patmos, it was rendered in the aorist middle indicative. In other words, John chose to be there. John dug deep down in his soul, and he chose the consequences of standing for Jesus and being rendered in the indicative. This is a statement of fact. The implication is that he could have chosen to not stand for the word of God, and likely he would have been at home, still facing or fleeing persecution. But God needed him on this island, and John needed to be on this island. God needed John to be isolated and not all wrapped up in the ministry and the drama. God needed John to be quiet and still to hear and receive the revelation. I'm sure that banishment of this dreary island was terrible, and John was likely not all that happy about it. But God was readying him for the event of his life, so he safely tucked John away on this little island until the appointed time. In the Spirit John was in the Spirit. This is an interesting phrase. We are not entirely sure what it means, but I would guess that he was in a time of intense worship and the Spirit came upon him in a unique way. This is probably what each of the Old Testament prophets experienced when they said that they were taken away in the Spirit or that the Spirit came upon them. Essentially, John's Spirit was permitted to cross over and experience the eternal dimensions where the unseen reality suddenly became visible. This aspect of John's experience is critical to us understanding and properly interpreting Revelation. John will primarily see things as they exist in the spiritual realm and not so much the physical realm. On the Lord's Day John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. For some reason, I was really bothered by this phrase. For the life of me, I could not understand why the Spirit would include such a trivial detail. To some, it seems that the Spirit, through John, is making a statement about the difference between the Sabbath, or Saturday, and Sunday, which years later would become known as the Lord's Day. But why would he do that? It does not make any sense given the context of the passage. Contextually, there might be a better way to view this seemingly trivial detail. It is likely that John was addressing the Day of the Lord. Whether expressed as the Day of the Lord or the Lord's Day, the important thing to note is that it is addressing figuratively a specific day, and it belongs to Yahweh. This phrase, however, is figurative for it references the end times judgment upon the world, which is spoken about extensively all throughout the Codex. Thus, it is not addressing a literal 24-hour period, but a literal event. In our vernacular, we might say Yahweh is having his moment, or his day under the sun, a time where he is under the spotlight. It's most likely that John referenced this day, so we will know right up front the context of the revelation he received, the end of days, the end times. The day of Yahweh, or the day of the Lord, is always, always, always spoken about by the prophets as something that is soon coming, that is near. It's a day of destruction from the Almighty, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation and to exterminate its sinners from it to punish this world for all its evil and the wicked for their iniquity, to put an end to the arrogance of the proud and to humble the pride of the mighty, to make mortal man scarcer than pure gold. The heavens will tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the fury of Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, in the day of his burning anger. It will be a day of clouds and a time of doom for the nations. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? He will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. 
The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. The nations will be called to the Valley of Judgment or the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which means Yahweh judges. The sickle will be swung, the nations harvested and thrown into the winepress of the wrath of God for the vats overflow with wickedness. It will be a day of darkness and not light, even gloom with no brightness in it. This is a day that draws near on all the nations for Yahweh has prepared a sacrifice, a day of wrath, trouble, destruction, desolation, darkness, and gloom, trumpet, and battle cry, a day of distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against Yahweh, and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. It is a day of wrath, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. This day will come like a thief in the night when no one is suspecting. But do not let anyone deceive you, for it has not yet come. The day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship and takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. What a terrifying description of this day of the Lord or the Lord's day. And being in the spirit on the Lord's day, John is telling us that he has seen it all and therefore can testify to it all such that he will deliver more than a warning, but an inevitability. It's just a matter of time. Like a trumpet. John then heard behind him the voice, great, as of a trumpet. It was not like a trumpet. It was not a trumpet, but the voice had the same magnitude or voluminous interruption as would a trumpet. It likely scared the dickens out of him. Why so loud? This is a grand proclamation regarding Jesus's message to his bondservants. This is a big deal, and it cannot be dismissed or downplayed. The voice is saying, write what you now see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. By the way, except for one time out of 50, saying is always rendered in the present tense and as a participle. The Spirit wants us to know that things spoken in the heavenly realms echo through eternity now, such that the declaration is a continuing present event for everyone to receive in their respective now. In fact, out of the 21 occurrences of the word translated said, in all but six references, it is also rendered in the present tense and often as a participle, and therefore should have been translated as says or saying. The point is that we are to understand that the Spirit is communicating to each of us in our now. The Majesty, Revelation chapter 1, verse 12 through 16. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I see seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he is holding seven stars, and out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, and his face like the sun shining in its strength. John turned around to face the direction from where the voice came, and the first thing he sees is seven golden lampstands. Being in the present tense, it should be translated, I see, not I saw. 
In other words, the image of the lampstands and in their midst, one like the Son of Man, is still applicable in our now. Jesus, even now, presents himself to his church in this manner, as one who stands amongst his church. Accordingly, all the references to the past tense, was and were, are not in the original text since the passage is description of what John sees. These past tense references were added by translators, and sadly, they distort the power of the image. The lampstands. In chapter 1, verse 20, Jesus will plainly explain that the lampstands are the seven churches. Not that they represent the seven churches, but are the seven churches. This is an important distinction and an example of how the code helps us from going astray in our understanding. Rendered in the present active indicative, we must conclude that these seven churches are the church of Jesus Christ, now and every moment of now from the time that this was written through the present. And being in the indicative mood, we know this is a statement of fact. But wait, we know for certain that the church at Ephesus, for instance, no longer exists, just as Jesus warned. He took away their lampstand. So how can this be true today? Relying on the code, we can conclude that it is not the location of the church that reveals the truth about the lampstand and its witness to the world, but the nature of each of these seven diverse churches. In other words, each lampstand is identified by its spiritual condition and the way Jesus deals with that condition, not its physical location. Hence, the church at Ephesus, in all its characteristics, is still present in the larger body of Christ, as is each of the other six churches. Fiction alert! Fiction alert! There have been many fictions set forth regarding the seven churches. For instance, there is a branch of biblical studies called dispensationalism, which is very much tied to the pre-tribulation rapture fiction. This view holds that each of the seven churches represent various epochs of church history, with the early church being the church in Ephesus, to the church of the end times being Laodicea. According to dispensationalists, each of the seven churches represent a different historical period of time and a different management by Yahweh of his church. However, since the Spirit rendered this image in the present active indicative, we know that these seven churches exist even now. Again, that is a statement of fact. Thus, this dispensational approach derives from people's instinctual religious wisdom and is a blatant violation of the code. There'll be more on this dispensationalist viewpoint when we get to the actual letters, but it is important to identify these populist fictions. One like the Son of Man. In addition to the lampstands, John sees the stunning image which sets the stage for what Jesus is going to say to the seven churches. This image, one like the Son of Man, is an allusion to a vision found in Daniel, where the Son of Man is presented to the Father who's referred to as the Ancient of Days. This little phrase, Son of Man, is used over 95 times in the book of Ezekiel. And Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man 85 times in the four Gospels. This nickname grounds us in the reality that Jesus is the Son of God who came in the flesh as a Son of Man. He really did suffer in the flesh, like a man. He was no spiritual apparition. And yes, he came from the Father. This is an important truth that John would later write about. He said that the one who denies that Jesus came in the flesh as a man is the deceiver and the antichrist. And it is by this that we can know whether a person is from God or from the enemy. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. 
This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Let us look at the glorified Son of Man. In so doing, let us keep in mind, however, that the letters to the churches are an appraisal, a judgment. Thus, it is appropriate that there are nine descriptors of Jesus, as nine is a numerical code for judgment. 1. Clothed with a long robe reaching to his feet. 2. With a golden sash around his chest. 3. The hairs of his head white like wool, as white as snow. 4. His eyes as a flame of fire. 5. His feet like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. 6. His voice like the sound of many waters. 7. In his right hand he held seven stars. 8. From his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. 9. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. Let's start with the beginning. Number one, the long robe speaks of his royalty as he was clothed in the attire of kings. Number two, the golden sash around his chest is emblematic of his divinity, represented by gold, and his royal authority as the chest is where medals and honor are displayed. Number three, the hairs of his head white like wool as white as snow speaks to us of his purity and righteousness in his judgment. White wool speaks of the wool of a lamb, just born pure and undefiled as the purity of freshly fallen snow. And according to the code, white is a picture of purity and righteousness. Thus all his judgments are righteous and true. His eyes, like a flame of fire, speaks to us of his penetrating wisdom and divine knowledge, which sees all things and can pierce every veil in the purifying fires of judgment, as everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. 5. His feet like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. This is a potent image. Let us start with the bronze. The process of combining the right mixture of metal to make bronze produces a flame which is so intense that the furnaces were always built underground, insulated by the earth, for nothing else could contain the heat. This speaks to the Son of Man's right to judge with each step he takes because he endured the ultimate purifying judgment of sacrifice with a heat like no other, the wrath of God. Number six, his voice like the sound of many waters speaks of his sheer power and majesty. The voice of Yahweh, the voice of the Lord, shakes the wilderness. It breaks the cedars. It makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare and flashes forth flames of fire. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with his breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Again sheer power and majesty. Number seven, in his right hand, he is holding seven stars. This speaks of the authority he now has over all the hosts of heaven or the angels, as he is Yahweh Sabaoth, the commander of heaven's armies, which is comprised of both good angels and surprisingly, the fallen angels. The right hand is a traditional symbol of strength and authority. Thus, nothing that happens is by chance. And there are no rogue agents. Rather, all things happen according to his will. And all things come into being through the spiritual into the physical, through his messengers, the hosts of heaven. Number eight, from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, which he even now and continually chooses to come forth from his, Jesus's mouth. This should be translated, from his mouth he is choosing to have coming a sharp two-edged sword. This signifies the deadly and sharp nature of the truth as his word is truth and is able to make the most delicate dissections between the truth and the lie, dividing as far as the division of soul and spirit, 
of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Thus, he cannot be deceived or misled, for there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare before him. He is able to penetrate the deepest of delusions with the truth. And since this is a choice that he makes to have this sword to now be coming from his mouth, this is a constant part of his nature and how he chooses to deal with mankind. Number nine, his face like the sun shining in its strength. This speaks of the glory and inescapable nature of his judgment. As all things are revealed by his light, he is the light of the world and there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. John had previously seen a glimpse of his glorious light at the transfiguration where Jesus' face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. If our sun is so bright that we cannot even look at it without damaging our eyes, the light of God must be unfathomable. Then to consider that the Father dwells in unapproachable light, we get the sense that the glory of the Father's brightness is filtered through his sun like the clouds filter the glory of the sun so we might get a safe glimpse of the Father by viewing the Son. And that's why Jesus said, who has seen me has seen the Father. Summary, one like the Son of Man. This image portrays for us the character and nature of Jesus Christ in judgment and depicts his right or authority to judge, his capability to judge, his worthiness to judge, and the quality of his judgment and the inescapable nature of his glory in judgment. This image leaves no room for the churches to deny, excuse, or twist the facts of anything that he says in his judgment of their spiritual condition. In essence, he is the ultimate delusion buster. Well, we will stop right here and pick up on our next podcast in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. To get a free download of the full written transcript with all the scripture references footnoted, please go to threshermediagroup.com. That is T-H-R-E-S-H-E-R mediagroup.com. This is Steve with Thresher Media Group. When you're ready to listen, tune in. <laughs>